Hello folks, Dominic here. Before we begin, a short message. This episode is dedicated to the memory of Professor Jeffrey Martin. Professor Martin was a prominent Egyptologist who led many excavations in royal and non-royal tombs. Among his many, many projects, Professor Martin supervised the discovery and excavation of Hormheb's private tomb at Saqqara. He also led the re-excavation of Hormheb's royal tomb in the Valley of the Kings. Professor Martin was, beyond doubt, the leading expert on Hormheb's burial monuments and his career. Professor Martin died on the 7th of March 2022. He was 87 years old, and he is mourned by many colleagues, friends, and family members. I never had the chance to meet Professor Martin, but his work has been influential on my personal academic growth, and of course, this podcast. Much of my information about Horemheb comes from publications and projects that Professor Martin led. So, I dedicate this episode to his memory. May he enjoy happy days in the fields of the West, and may his name enjoy long remembrance on Earth. Salam alaikum, and welcome back to the History of Egypt podcast. Episode 169, Royal Tomb, Maverick. Today, we explore a monument that is far more impressive than you would expect. A monument that mixes old, familiar tropes with new elements. And a monument that, from start to finish, demonstrates impeccable craftsmanship and design. Today we explore the beauty and legacy of King Horemheb's tomb in the Valley of the Kings. This episode comes to you on behalf of Ray, Ritka, and TV, who joined the Patreon as hereditary nobles. Folks, thank you very much. With your support, we can dig the royal tomb ever deeper, adding new halls and passages. Thanks to people like TV, Ritka, and Ray, the monument grows larger and more secure. Thank you for your support. To everyone listening, thank you for joining me. Come, let us return to the valley to see beautiful things. In 1323 BCE, a royal official made his way up the hills of the Valley of the Kings. The official's name was Maya, a high-ranking member of the government. This was not his first visit to the valley. Maya had gone to inspect a tomb, the burial hall of Tutmose IV. Maya did his job and left a record in that tomb, documenting his work. Now, Maya was back. This time, he came to the valley to inspect a different tomb. But not an old one, a new tomb. Maya came to supervise the construction of the burial halls of King Hor-em-Heb. Hor-em-Heb has a magnificent tomb in the Valley of the Kings. It is, easily, one of the most impressive in the entire valley. But not many people know about it. The tomb of Hor-em-Heb is closed today, and you need a special permit to visit. Those are expensive, so not many people get the chance. Fortunately, Archaeologists have recorded this tomb in detail. And this monument is remarkable, because it teaches us a lot about royal tombs overall, and the building process behind them. Normally, I would cover a royal tomb at the end of a reign. 
But Horemheb's monument is complicated. There's a lot to unpack, and the tomb is significant in several different ways. Rather than cover everything in one story and overload you with information, I'm going to break with my usual tradition. Today, we will explore the tomb itself, the art, the architecture, and the wonderful hints of the ancient work. In a future episode, I will cover the religious aspects, the symbolism, the funerary texts, and of course, the king's burial. Hopefully, splitting it up will keep things manageable, and we'll get a sense of why this tomb is so significant. With that in mind, let's head off up the valley following Maya. Maya stood in a shallow cleft in the western part of the King's Valley. Before him, teams of labourers were hard at work. They were digging, tunnelling through the bedrock and excavating the halls. From the subterranean passages, workers would carry basket after basket, full of rubble and debris. Maybe they worked in a human chain, standing in a line and passing the baskets back one by one. Doing this, they could efficiently move debris from hidden depths to the outside world. Like a conveyor belt, they could maximise their work. In the sun-drenched valley, Maya would come by to supervise every now and again. The official had many titles, many jobs in Horemheb's government, but one of his most prominent jobs was Imira Kawut em Set Nechech. This translates as the overseer of works in the place of eternity. The place of eternity is the ancient name for the Valley of the Kings. So Maya was Horemheb's manager for building projects in the royal necropolis. Maya held this title previously, back in the reign of Tutankhamun. Chances are, he was responsible for building Tutankhamun's original monument. The one he planned to use, not the one he was actually buried in. We don't know that for sure, there are no specific records of Tutankhamun's early tomb. But Maya had that title, Overseer of Works in the Valley of the Kings, during that reign. Thirteen years after Tutankhamun's death, Maya was back in the Valley of the Kings. And as he watched the labourers excavating the tomb of Horemheb, Maya might have reflected on recent events. And a small coincidence. The tomb of Horemheb is surprisingly close to the actual tomb of Tutankhamun, about a hundred metres from the boy king and there are no major tombs between them. In a certain sense, Horemheb's tomb and Tutankhamun's are neighbours. I wonder if that's intentional. We know that Horemheb, as pharaoh, kind of replaced Tutankhamun. He usurped the boy king's monuments in many places. But he didn't always do that, and his attitude changed and evolved over the years. It's possible that in the early days, when he was planning his tomb, Horemheb still respected and acknowledged his young predecessor publicly. Maybe, when it came time to choose a location for his monument, the nearby burial of Tutankhamun was meaningful. That is just a guess. There could be other reasons. Maybe the bedrock here was particularly suitable for the tomb that Horemheb desired. But these monuments are remarkably close. Horemheb's tomb is also neighbours with the tomb of Amunhotep II. That monument is just up the road from Horemheb. I would say that is probably intentional. Amunhotep II was a respected monarch, and Horemheb's tomb borrows several features from the monument of Amunhotep, and others like it. 
With that in mind, I would not be surprised if Horemheb chose to build his tomb close to that ruler. Whatever his motives, we can say that Horemheb's tomb is neighbours with two significant predecessors. Put them together, Horemheb, Tutankhamun, and Amunhotep II, and you have a little 18th dynasty cluster in this part of the valley. Horemheb's tomb may be close to those predecessors, but compared to those monuments, it is unique in almost every respect. The architecture, decoration, and even the funerary texts in Horemheb's tomb are a major shift from what came before. Horemheb's monument uses some older elements, but it adapts them, and in the process, it makes something new. There are three major reasons why Horemheb's tomb is remarkable, or at least different. First, the tomb's architecture is distinctive. It borrows some elements from the early 18th dynasty, but it also incorporates features innovated by King Akhenaten. I'll explore this in more detail in just a moment, but Horemheb's tomb mixes elements of older and newer styles, mashing them together to create something new. Secondly, Horemheb's tomb introduces a new style of decoration. The king's artists abandoned the old way of painting royal tombs, and introduced their own innovation. This style was more elaborate and more time-consuming, but the results would speak for themselves in artistic quality. Again, I'll cover that in just a moment. Finally, Horemheb's tomb is remarkable for religious reasons. The king's monument does not use the text that earlier rulers had incorporated in their chambers, texts like the Amduat. Instead, Horemheb's tomb introduces a new religious text. This text is called the Book of Gates, and it will become a major feature of tomb design moving forward. I won't cover the Book of Gates today, it is too big and too complicated. Instead, I'll save it for the end of Horemheb's reign, when the king makes his journey to the west, and when the book came in handy. For now, just know that this text is a new feature, a major innovation from Horemheb's tomb. These three factors, architecture, decoration, and religious literature, combine to make Horemheb's tomb unique. It is distinct from what came before in certain fundamental ways, and the innovations that it introduced would persist. Following Horemheb's reign, the rulers of Dynasty 19 would take these ideas and use them for their own monuments. If you are interested in the history of tomb building, Horemheb's monument is basically the first of the Ramesside tombs. So that's the overview of the monument. But how did Horemheb, Maya, and the royal architects design and create this tomb? When Horemheb, and perhaps Maya his overseer, were planning this monument, they had a few options on the architectural layout. Royal tombs are not cookie-cutter, they have their own idiosyncrasies, and over the centuries, many trends came and went. So Horemheb's tomb could have taken one of several different forms. The first option was to revive the classic 18th dynasty style. For the past two centuries, rulers had built monuments that twisted as they descended into the earth. From the entrance, the tomb passages would proceed straight, but then they would veer sharply, making right-angled turns, 
This crooked style was possibly symbolic, meant to represent the twists and turns of the underworld, the duat. We are not sure, that's kind of an educated guess by scholars. But either way, the old twisty-turny tomb was the classic style of Dynasty 18. Horemheb could have gone with that. Alternatively, the builders could have followed the innovations of Akhenaten. That king had introduced a new design principle for the royal tomb. His monument, in the hills of Amarna, ditched the twists and turns in favour of something straighter. The tomb of Akhenaten, and the tomb of Ai, not long after, proceed directly into the rock, straight the whole way down. That was option two. Horemheb chose both of these designs, or he chose neither. It's weird. The king's tomb does not twist and turn like the earlier monuments, but it's not entirely straight like Akhenaten's. Horemheb's monument proceeds directly into the rock, following a straight axis for several passages. Then it does deviate slightly to the left as it makes its way to the burial chamber. We're not sure why Horemheb did this. It might be a result of the construction process. The tomb's passages and doors are slightly off-kilter here and there, so maybe the builders were having trouble maintaining a straight line. Perhaps the bedrock was unsuitable in this part of the valley, and they needed to adjust for better stability. Whatever the cause, the tomb has a unique alignment. Not crooked, but not quite straight. So Horemheb's tomb follows an unusual axis. It's much closer to Akhenaten's than it is to the older style, but it's still a little bit off. For the chambers, though, Horemheb definitely ignored Akhenaten's example. Instead, Horemheb revived a design from the earlier monuments and incorporated them into the new model. Specifically, Horemheb's burial chamber has two elements that were part of older tombs but mostly abandoned by Akhenaten. The first feature is a split-level mezzanine design. The front half of the burial chamber, just near the entrance, is raised up, but the back half is deeper, with a staircase leading down to the sarcophagus. That feature was common in earlier 18th dynasty tombs, but Akhenaten had mostly abandoned it. Horemheb brought this design back. Secondly, Horemheb's burial chamber has extra halls, side chambers that branch off from the room. These halls, usually called storerooms, appear on the east and west sides of the burial chamber. They are small, nothing fancy, but they are distinctive. Again, these features are mostly absent from the tomb of Akhenaten and the tomb of King Ai, but they are present in earlier monuments. The best examples of this design can be found in the tombs of Amunhotep III, Tutmos IV, and Amunhotep II, so it seems that Horemheb looked back to those predecessors when designing his monument. He did not copy everything from the older tombs, but he did use their style as a template. This gives us an idea of, well, ideas percolating in royal society. Apparently, Horemheb and maybe his contemporaries, were looking back to the past and mixing elements that they liked. They took some of Akhenaten's innovations, but they combined them with more traditional features. As a result, 
Horemheb's monument is an architectural hybrid. It has the mostly straight axis that Akhenaten had introduced, but the rest of the tomb is classic 18th dynasty. The result is a monument that is both traditional and novel. Why did Horemheb choose this hybrid style? We don't know. Maybe he liked the straight axis, but he wanted more rooms for his stuff. Perhaps Horemheb saw the value in Akhenaten's changes, but he wanted to restore some traditional ideas as well. In theory, Horemheb could have built a classic 18th dynasty style. We know that his officials, like Maya, had inspected some of those older tombs quite recently, and it's a fair bet that the Egyptian government kept records of tomb designs. If Horemheb was really determined to have a classic style tomb, he probably could have done it. So chances are, Horemheb, Maya, and the other tomb builders were simply adapting to their time. They had inherited new ideas about tomb architecture and symbolism. Maybe, at this moment in history, Egypt's rulers had the chance to innovate, and they chose something new. So the royal tomb of Horemheb is an important milestone in the history of the Valley of the Kings. But enough about the architecture. What about the art? After the break, we will explore the art of Horemheb's tomb. This monument is beautiful. One of the most beautiful in the entire valley. And more importantly, Horemheb's builders did something different. They introduced a new style for tomb decoration. We will explore that in a moment. And as we do, we'll get a chance to explore the process, the stages of tomb decoration. That is after the break. See you in a moment. In 1323 BCE, royal artists were building Horemheb's tomb. This monument in the Valley of the Kings is a fascinating structure. In terms of design, it has one foot in the 18th dynasty, the age of Amunhotep III, Tutmose IV, and Akhenaten. But it also has a foot in a new era, an era that, in hindsight, we will call the 19th dynasty. Architecturally, this monument is unusual in many respects, and it would set a template for many generations to come. But that's not the only reason this tomb is intriguing. You see, unbeknownst to the general public, Horemheb's tomb is beautiful. The artwork in this monument is exceptional, top-tier design and production. And compared to what came before in the earlier 18th dynasty, the tomb is quite simply stunning. Depending on your point of view, this tomb may have the best art of the entire 18th dynasty. What makes it so cool? Well, traditionally, royal tombs were decorated in a relatively straightforward manner. The masons would quarry out the walls and rub the stone down until it was smooth. Then the artists would place a layer of plaster on the wall. And finally, they would paint the figures, the scenes, and the hieroglyphs onto that plaster. That was the template. It had worked for generations. But Horemheb's artists did it differently. Horemheb's tomb has a new style of art. Instead of a flat surface with plaster and paint, the artists now began to carve their scenes. 
They took the flat stone surface and drew an outline of the intended images. Then they carved around those outlines. The result was a style closer to temple decoration than earlier royal tombs. This style was more complicated to produce. It required greater planning, greater expertise, like stone carvers, and it took longer to make. The results were not perfect, and we'll see why in a moment. But when it worked, it really worked. Horemheb's tomb, arguably, has the most beautiful art of any 18th dynasty tomb. And while later monuments would match or even surpass it, those tombs developed on the example set here. So this monument really stands out from its recent predecessors. Arguably, this new carved style was another innovation introduced by Akhenaten. His tomb at Amarna also had wall carvings, and it would have been painted when finished. But there is an important difference between Akhenaten's carvings and Horemheb's. In Akhenaten's tombs, the carvings are sunk or low relief. This means that the artists drew the figures and glyphs onto the wall, and then they chiseled within the lines. They hollowed out the figures from the surface around them. In Horemheb's tomb, it's the opposite. The artists drew the figures and glyphs, and then carved outside the lines. The change may sound minor, but it had a massive impact on the quality of the carving itself. By chiseling away the background instead of the figures, the artists could create finer edges and more delicate features. The details of the people could be more elaborate and precisely carved. Overall, it led to a higher standard of work, at least from an aesthetic perspective. Of course, the new style had its costs. The decoration took far longer than the earlier models. Was it worth it? Sort of. The decoration in Horemheb's tomb is unfinished. Half of the art is done, but the other half is incomplete. As you might expect, the difference between these finished and unfinished sections is practically night and day. The finished art is intricate. The most famous images come from the well shaft in Horemheb's tomb. On these walls, we see the king coming before the gods. The king approaches great deities like Horus, god of kingship, Osiris, the king of the dead, Isis or Aset, the great mother, Hathor or Huther, lady of fertility and childbirth. Anubis, guardian of the dead, welcomes Horemheb to the west. And these deities all appear in absolutely gorgeous detail. The artists used six colours for their work. Black, red, blue, yellow, green, and white. Sometimes they would mix these, blending different shades or gradients. But overall, those are the primary colours. Red, black, yellow, blue, green, and white. The background of each scene is a kind of blue-green, almost grey. It is a simple shade that allows the coloured images to stand out. Everywhere you look, the colours in these scenes are gorgeous. They are bright, vibrant, and well-defined. To give a few examples, the god Horus wears a headdress of red and blue. Horemheb's necklace is painted with stippling, tiny splotches that simulate beads. Osiris, standing tall, is wrapped in a shroud of brilliant white, or hedge in Egyptian. Hathor, or Huther, 
wears a fabulous dress. It takes the form of wings wrapped around her body. But the wings are blue, and each feather is modelled separately. It gives the dress a detailed but not overwhelming appearance. Truly excellent work. Finally, Isis, or Aset, wears an equally beautiful dress. This one is red, with a blue underlay and details picked out in yellow. The dress seems to be decorated with tiny rosettes, flowers, that spread across the fabric in orderly rows. At a glance, the dress seems like a vibrant polka dot style, but looking closer, it is a marvel of exquisite painted details. Those are the finished scenes. The unfinished scenes are another story. They're still beautiful, but quite different from the finished ones. The unfinished scenes survive in various stages of completion. Some of them were almost done, just missing a couple details. Others are half done, with a mix of outlines and completed portions. Finally, some scenes are little more than drafts, drawn onto the wall as preliminary sketches. There is far too much to talk about here in detail, but I'll single out a couple of interesting parts. One wall shows a scene that was half-finished when the tomb was finally closed. Here, we find an elaborate image of deities in the underworld, along with decorative symbols and religious motifs. What makes this image interesting is that the scene was clearly in progress when the artists stopped working. At the bottom of the image, the wall has been carved and smoothed, ready for painting, but just above that, there are sections that are only half-carved. The sculptor has done the outline of certain hieroglyphs, but he hasn't finished. As a result, we have a scene that is carved and polished in some areas, but just a rough sketch in others. And there is a very clear boundary where the sculptor was working when the tomb finally closed. It is so clear that you can pinpoint the exact moment when they lifted their chisel stepped back, and never returned. It's amazing. Another scene reveals the process or stages of work. On one wall, we get an image that shows a row of serpents. Cobras move forward in procession. They are on a riverbank, with water beneath and columns of hieroglyphs above. This image was never carved, it is still in the preliminary phase. The sculptors had smoothed the wall, but there was no chiseling done yet. When the tomb was closed, the artists had only drawn the scene in a basic outline. That may not sound interesting, but bear with me. The reason I like this scene is that you can still see the phases of the artist's work. When decorating the tombs, artists worked in stages. First, the stonemasons would smooth and polish the wall. Then, the painters would lay a grid in red ink. This would provide the guidelines for the figures, so that everything was in proportion and appropriately lined up. Thirdly, the artists would draw a scene, along with its hieroglyphs, in a kind of first draft sketch. When that draft was ready, an overseer would come and inspect the work. They would make changes, correcting the design here and there. Only then would the final phase begin. So the artists worked in stages, producing a couple versions of the scene as they went. The tomb of Horemheb has excellent examples of this process. The line of serpents, cobras, appears on a wall. The artists have clearly finished phase one, 
they have smoothed the stone, laid out the grid, and done the initial draft. But on this wall, you can clearly see where the overseer has corrected mistakes in the first draft. For example, the cobras seem to have been rearranged. On the left side of the scene, you can see the black outline of two serpents. But underneath those black lines, there are still red lines from the first draft. We can see that the initial draft of this scene had three cobras, but the second draft only has two. Apparently, the overseer decided to cut out one serpent to fit the space better. Near the middle of this scene, another cobra appears in black. But just to its left, red ink shows another ghostly serpent that was never completed. All along the wall, these changes are visible. Moments where the artists corrected their initial design between different drafts. Why am I talking about this? Well, Tiny details like this give a sense of the ancient creative process. At a glance, the images might seem generic. Another underworld scene, the king with the gods, etc, etc. But if you look closer, past the symbolism, we can see the hand of different artists and the changes they made to their work. In draft 1, the scene appeared one way, but in draft 2, it changed in significant features. This is cool, because if the scene had been finished, we would never know about the changes. When the artist completed their work, all of those alterations and imperfections were hidden beneath the paint. Since this work was incomplete, you can still see the rough drafts, the hands of these people. You can imagine an artist completing their first sketch, and turning to the overseer in satisfaction. But then the boss pulls out a black paintbrush and starts making corrections everywhere. By the end, the artist has to change many aspects of their carefully crafted scene. Was that frustrating? Probably. Like an ancient Google document with a million comments from different middle managers, the tomb of Horemheb preserves traces of the ancient workflow. But in my opinion, that gives us a far more intimate, personal story than the fully completed images. I love details like these. The royal tomb of Horemheb is magnificent. Honestly, I could talk about this building even more. And I will, in the future. For now though, it is time to bring this episode to a close. Horemheb's tomb is significant for several reasons. The architecture mixes the conventional 18th dynasty style, with the innovations introduced by Akhenaten. The art is a massive change. Now, the royal tomb bore elaborate carved reliefs, the sort you might find on a temple. So the royal tomb now looked closer to the houses of the gods. That would influence the religious symbolism that developed within these monuments. I'll talk about that another time, but even a casual observer can see a massive difference in the new style. If you look at the tomb of Tutmose III, for example, and compare that with Horemheb's, the difference is massive. Was the new style better? That's down to your personal preference. But in terms of complexity, how much effort and time it took to make these scenes, the new style was absolutely more involved. These innovations would have a long impact. Following Horemheb, 
Egyptian pharaohs would inherit the new model, and they would follow the template, with only minor changes, for centuries. From that perspective, you can see Horemheb's tomb as the first of the Ramesside burial monuments. Without this tomb, you wouldn't necessarily get the famous monument of Nefertari, or Seti I. So, although this monument is forgotten by the general public, it is a major turning point in royal tomb design and history. If you are interested in the architecture of royal burials, or their decoration and construction, this monument is well worth your time. Finally, there was an unintended benefit. The tomb of Horemheb is unfinished. The artists never completed the decoration. On paper, that's a negative, but it did have a silver lining. Thanks to the interruption and the premature end of work, the artists left the decoration in various stages of completion. From that, scholars can use Horemheb's tomb to study aspects of the work. The stages in which scenes were planned, the way the artists drafted them, revised them, and then completed the imagery. All of this can be found in other tombs, but Horemheb's monument gives a really concentrated example. Today, historians could use it as a case study of ancient practices and methods. It's become a great teaching tool. Overall, Horemheb's royal tomb is a magnificent structure. Although it is closed to the public, these halls are well documented by archaeologists and scholars. Thanks to their work, we have a detailed understanding of the monument. And looking at those details, we can see all kinds of stories. The moment when an artist put down their chisel or paintbrush and left the tomb forever. The stages of work where a first draft received corrections and changes. The detailed colouring and fine features on the painted scenes. And, in the big picture, the innovations that Horemheb and his architects devised. The king's tomb mixed recent ideas with older motifs, and added a few flourishes of its own. The result was a monument that harkened back to traditional, even nostalgic memories, but it recognised the value of recent developments, and incorporated those ideas into a new style. The result is a tomb of impeccable craftsmanship. It is not perfect, clearly the new style of art was too complicated to finish in time, but overall, the tomb of Horemheb is a genuine maverick. It adopts, adapts, and innovates. And it showed the path to a new future. This was part one in my coverage of Horemheb's tomb. Part two will arrive at the end of his reign, when it is time for the burial and funeral. In that episode, we will cover the aspects I did not discuss this time. Aspects like the funerary literature, which Horemheb changed from earlier monarchs. And of course, the burial of Horemheb himself. Much of that burial is lost, but parts of it survive in unexpected places. 
I will explore those topics at the appropriate moment, when Horemheb makes his journey to the west. For now, though, it is time to leave this tomb and return to the world of the living. Next time, Horemheb has a dilemma. As the king enters his second decade of power, Horemheb still has not produced a son. There is no heir to inherit his power. The king was trying, and his wife went through numerous pregnancies. But eventually, he would need to face facts. A son was not forthcoming. Soon, Horemheb would have to adapt to the situation. He would need to choose an heir from among his many servants. That heir is a famous name, Pa-Ra-Mesu, better known as Ramesses. We will meet him in the next chapter. That episode will arrive in two weeks. For the next few months, I need to adopt a slightly different schedule. My PhD work is ramping up as I enter my final year of study. And I'll be moving house soon to a new city. That's going to be a stressful process, so while I manage all that personal business, I'm going to release episodes in a new pattern. For the next few months, the podcast will arrive in a cycle. I will do three episodes in a row, week by week. Then I'll take one week off to catch up on work. Then another three episodes will begin. I've stolen this model from the podcast History of the 20th Century, shout out to Mark. But it's a good way to balance podcasting and personal obligations. So the next episode will arrive in two weeks. I will see you then. Oh, and stick around after the end for a brief epilogue about some hidden, secret features of Horemheb's tomb. Thank you for listening to the History of Egypt podcast. Before I go, let me give special thanks to my patrons, my supporters on patreon.com. An extra special thanks must go to the priests, Evan, TJ, Linda, Terry, Kyla, Ashley, Mykost, Nidin, Andy and Chelsea, Stephen, Jason, and Yola. Your support is endlessly generous, and I am always in your debt. With your help, I can afford to redesign my PhD. Instead of typing it out on a word processor, I'm going to carve it out of stone, and then paint the words on top. It might take longer, but the results will be beautiful. Hopefully, I can get that done before the pharaoh dies. If not, well... At least we'll have the work-in-progress version. Hello folks, welcome to an epilogue, a small extra feature of Horemheb's tomb. Horemheb's royal monument goes down deep into the earth. As you pass the entrance, you will descend staircases, long corridors, and small chambers. And as usual, there is a well, a deep shaft at the base of a passageway. Well shafts appear in many tombs, probably initially designed as a security feature against thieves and floods. Architecturally, they are standard, the sort you will find in many royal monuments. But Horemheb's tomb has a secret, a feature that not many know about, and which is invisible to this day. The tomb has a hidden chamber. The well shaft near the entrance is quite deep, and it has a room at the bottom. Two rooms, in fact. Far below the corridors, on the west and north sides of the shaft, two small chambers open up. 
I say chambers, but they're more like incomplete corridors, tiny openings branching off from the well. These chambers don't show up on any diagrams or plans. Why? Well, they're not published. The original excavation, back in the early 20th century, mentioned a, quote, smaller room that had been cut in the rock next to the well. But the writer of that report, Theodore Davis, did not include it on any diagrams or photos. So for a long time, that tiny room was forgotten. And since the well shaft was still full of debris, it remained that way for decades. Finally, in the 1990s, archaeologists returned. A new project sought to re-excavate the monument, clean it, and conserve the remains. An Egyptian team, led by Professor Jeffrey Martin, re-excavated the well shaft, and they found the two small chambers. When they opened them, they found the rooms full of debris that Martin said had solidified, almost like cement. There were no objects, just rubble, and the rooms do not have any decorations or hieroglyphs on their walls. Basically, they are tiny rough cavities with no distinguishing features. So what's the purpose of these rooms? These well chambers have appeared before. There is one in the tomb of Amunhotep II, one in the tomb of Tutmose IV, and one in the tomb of Amunhotep III. The purpose of such chambers remains unclear. Since they aren't decorated, and they don't have texts, we can't really say what they're for. They could be drainage chambers for the well, or perhaps they could be symbolic, burial spaces for the gods of the underworld. That is a big question, and I won't dive into it here, but the small chambers in these well shafts are an intriguing feature. If you would like to learn more about this well shaft, its tiny chambers, and the excavation of this tomb, I highly recommend a lecture by Professor Jeffrey Martin. Professor Martin led the re-excavation project in the 1990s, and he gave a talk at the Metropolitan Museum of Art regarding this work. That lecture is available free on YouTube, and it's an enjoyable watch. If you would like to see, there is a link in the episode description. At the very least, it is worth watching Professor Martin in action. This podcast owes him a great debt. His work is a fitting tribute to this tomb. Once again, the link is in the description. I hope you'll enjoy it. That's all from me. I will see you soon on the next episode of the History of Egypt podcast. (laughs) 